Good morning. Today's reading is from Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 58. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and, the and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the word of the Lord. You may please be seated. Thank you, Christina. Good morning, church. Ooh. We got to try that again. Good morning, church. There it is. Man, that, singing that song, I'm ready to preach. I'm ready to preach now. Uh, if you didn't know, this is uh, Cody Kimmel, uh, elder and pastor at Redemption Arcadia, and the band from Redemption Arcadia came down to lead us. Uh, could we thank them for driving down here? So my name is Stephen, and I am one of the uh, leaders here, one of the pastors, and usually I'm up here leading the music, but this week I get the opportunity, the privilege to get to preach God's word. And uh, I really, though, think that Arcadia should be thanking us, because now they get to be a part of the greatest city in Arizona. They get, they get to get out of that wasteland, that which will not be named. They think because they got fancy freeways and all that, that they're good to go. Well, which city won the UNESCO, you know, city of gastronomy and clearly is better. Um, I say that maybe to, to soften the blow of a certain basketball game that uh, many of us were in confession about laying down idolatry earlier. And so uh, my name is Stephen, and I don't say that because I think you just forgot it, but if you did, you're welcome. But I say this because I, my name's Stephen, and I'm, I'm preaching a sermon about a guy named Stephen preaching a sermon. So this is a little bit of preaching inception, as someone told me here this, this morning. So we're in the book of Acts, and uh, really we said this is the Acts of God. And week by week, we've been seeing this new church of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. We just even sang about these things. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, working through problems, engaging around them. We see this new church and the established Jewish leadership. This has been a theme throughout these things. They have been colliding. Tension has been mounting. And this conflict finally comes to a head today with the story of Stephen. So if you're taking notes... Uh, Dave apparently decided he wanted to finish the book of Acts today, so he's just having me do basically the whole thing, because uh, we're doing the rest of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and some of chapter 8. So I, I, I don't know. Uh, we'll see how this goes. This may be a seven and a half hour sermon, but I promise I will do my best. This is a huge text, so I want to give us something to kind of to, to give some handles on it, something to track with. So I got three points for us. It is one, the servant of the sovereign Lord, if you're taking notes. Two, the story of the sovereign Lord. And sovereign just means God is in control. The one who is in control, the powerful one. And three, the cost of following the sovereign Lord. 
So if you've got your Bibles, you can start turning to Acts uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 8. And if you don't have a Bible, we want to get one into your hands. Uh, we believe the Bible is the very Word of God. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. If you do not own a Bible, if you don't have one, could you raise your hand? We want to get one into your hands. Uh, we, if you do not own a Bible at all, this is a gift to you. Uh, if you do own a Bible and you just forgot it, um, please, uh, please just leave it at the Connect desk. And if you've got, we said this a few weeks ago, if you've got like 100 of these at home, um, either you are just devouring the word, or maybe bring some of them back for us. We'd appreciate that. Um, let's keep those hands up. They're going to hand them out. Let me pray for us. Pray for our hearts. Pray that the spirit who wrote this word would give us the ability to understand it and give me the ability to preach it because I need the Holy Spirit to guide me. I'm not that smart. I'm not that influential, and I'm not that gifted to lead us on my own. So let's pray. God, thank you for this time that we can come here and sit under your word, gather here in a public school. Proclaim the excellencies of your character and your mission and your gospel. Holy Spirit, as you indeed wrote this scripture, give me the ability to preach it in a way that makes sense and is helpful. And Lord, I pray that you give all of us a heart that would uh, be soft, that we might hear it. Uh, Holy Spirit, guide the tone, guide the content, Lord, guide uh, our ability to track. And uh, Lord, I pray that all of this would be for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would be magnified. Lord, I pray above all else that you would look supremely beautiful, majestic, and awesome because you are. You are worthy of all our worship and our praise and our devotion and our life. Go before us now. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get to work. Um, Pick it up, chapter 6, like I said, verse 8. All the scripture is going to be up on, on here. So we're starting point one, the servant of the sovereign Lord. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen is the main character. I'll, I'll confess it's a little weird to preach about with the main character is your own name, so bear with me with that. But as we learned last week, uh, Stephen was one of the seven people chosen by the apostles to serve the Greek Jewish widows. And he was doing um, great wonders and signs, as it says in this text, among the people. And we learned a valuable leadership lesson from Stephen and from the apostles uh, in last week's text and really in this one as well. And that is that leadership is through serving. Leadership is through serving. If you think leadership is devoid of serving, then your definition of leadership needs modification. Something Dave says, and this has really shaped me, uh, he says that rather than using the language of servant leader, we ought to use the language of lead servant when we talk about leadership. And I just want to ask you, is that how you view your influence, your leadership, your platform, your ministry, as a place to be the lead servant? Would your coworkers say this is true of you? Would your employees or would your teammates say this is true of you, that you embody a posture of a lead servant? Husbands, would your wives say you take the posture of lead servant in the home or as a leader to be served? I know I'm getting close. Church, let us be a people marked by a radical leadership of serving. Let us be a people marked by a radical leadership of serving. I'm going to be calling us to say amen, which is I agree. Amen. 
From the text, we see that Stephen doesn't only serve the tables, but he also preaches the word. See, power is being demonstrated and displayed through Stephen's ministry, through the apostles' ministry, through the church. The power of God is being made manifest through God's people. And this text says in verse 10 that the people cannot bear the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The spirit is above all. The spirit is God. The spirit gives wisdom and discernment and power and clarity that the world cannot bear in and of itself. That's why I prayed the Holy Spirit would empower me because I do not have it in and of myself, the ability to do any of this. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Like I said, this is a big text. We're going to be walking through a number of scriptures here. Verse 11. Chapter 6, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. These Jewish people, they, they lie, they stir up dissension, they cause division and strife. And what this text shows us, we are willing to give up a lot to maintain the status quo and to have our idols. What are we willing to give up? What integrity, what uh, obedience unto the Lord are we willing to get up to simply maintain the status quo, to keep our comfort, to keep our power, to keep our influence? We'll see here, as we read at the beginning, they're willing to kill a man for these things. Stephen is seized and brought before the council. The council is the Jewish leadership. And they set up false witnesses. They accuse Stephen of breaking Jewish customs, values, and law. This trial all echoes the trial of Jesus leading to his crucifixion. Do we see that? We see that this should echo that. It should point to that. Stephen's and Jesus' accusations are really in the same vein. And we see Jesus' words to his disciples coming to life. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you as well. And I want to encourage you, church. Let us not lose heart when the world around us does not understand us or agree with us. If the world misunderstood Jesus, it will misunderstand us as well. Press in here. Look, look at me. If... To follow, to follow Jesus is to embrace. To follow Jesus is to embrace being misunderstood, is to embrace being mocked and maligned. In doing so, we are following in the footsteps of our Savior. I don't want us to lose heart. And Stephen, like Jesus, is asked to, to answer for these charges that are given to him. And Jesus, though, there's a difference between how Stephen and Jesus respond. Jesus is like a lamb led to the slaughter. He remained silent before his accusers. He did not defend his case, for he knew he was innocent and was going to pay the penalty of the guilty. He was going to pay for our sins. Jesus was silent. And praise God that he was, for he paid the penalty of our sin and died the death we should have died. But Stephen speaks. 
These similar trials, Jesus is silent and Stephen speaks. And Stephen speaks full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to take a back seat in the book of Acts, and it's not going to take a back seat in the sermon. Stephen speaks, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And when he's full of the Holy Spirit, he proclaims the excellencies of the story of our sovereign God. If you're taking notes, the Spirit of God leads the people of God to declare the glory of God. I'm going to repeat that. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to declare the glory of God. So one, Stephen is the servant of the sovereign Lord. And number two, Stephen shares the story of the sovereign Lord. We can pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. The story of the sovereign Lord. And the high priest said, are these things so? Are the accusations true? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory. Stephen's speech is rooted in, is directed in, is centered in the character and mission and word of God. I just want to say, considering this exposition is over 50 verses long, uh, we're not going to cover every line. Um, We're not going to be here for seven hours as we do this. I'm going to need a lot of water um, and an intermission. But uh, here's the big idea for, for, to help us track with this. Is Stephen is going over key points in Israel's history to show how God used the people's rejection and disobedience to bring about blessing and salvation. This is going to be something that's going to weave through the rest of this sermon. And, and Stephen starts with this guy named Joseph. He, starts, he kind of has two main figures he's going to point out, and one of those is Joseph. And he's going to spend a good chunk of time on that. And we're not talking about Mary and Joseph. We're talking about Joseph, the great-grandchild of Abraham. We're talking about Joseph, who was one of the 12 uh, sons of Israel, of, who would be one of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. We're talking about Joseph, who resisted temptation with Potiphar's wife in Egypt. We're talking about Joseph, who led the great famine relief program for Israel and made sure they all did not perish. Or we may simply know him as Joseph, the one with the fancy, colorful coat. It's funny what people remembered as. I picture Joseph saying, they're like, are you kidding me? Like, I, uh, the coat? Like, really? Like, that's what we're going to get known as? And if you didn't grow up in, in Sunday school, you'd be like, what are you talking about right now? Um, I'm very thankful I grew up in Sunday school. I learned a song about, uh, about Joseph's very colorful coat. Some of you know this song. I'm not going to sing it because I have dignity. And so... In all seriousness, though, I'm very thankful for the context I grew up in. I grew up in the church, grew up uh, hearing songs and stories about Scripture uh, from ever I can remember. I heard about Jesus and his love uh, for me and God sending his son to die on the cross. I'm very thankful for that, Um, even if I got some silly songs and some weird cultural artifacts along the way. But I do want to say this. We, we're doing something somewhat similar here this morning. We have uh, children's volunteers that are serving right now. Uh, leading in that. And I just talked about this idea of being a lead servant. And I, I do want to highlight something because we don't, we don't do it a lot. And I think we need to press into it a little bit is um, the people that are serving in kids ministry are, are, are leading in incredible ways as being a lead servant. Parents, uh, maybe this is the one hour a week where you get some space, right? And you're like, I look forward to this in incredible ways. Some of the moms are like, you have no idea. Um, And it's not just your kids. And you're like, hey, my kids are a handful. Um, Some of the kids' volunteers are like, we know. And then uh, 
But they got to deal with everybody's kids. There's like 795 kids in some of these rooms. It's, it's absolutely incredible uh, what's going on here. And uh, they're serving in incredible ways. And I just want to ask, I want to honor some people in, in the room. I wasn't necessarily planning on this, but how many of you guys, there's like 50 of you. How many of you guys serve in kids ministry? Show, show your hands. Get those, this is an auction. Like, let's get those hands up. How many of you guys serve in kids? Can we thank them for what they do? I think some of us forget the kids volunteers once a month, they, they miss this to serve in kids. That's a cost. Thank you guys for, for what you do. Um, I just want to say, like, we talk about lead servants. That's a practical application of this stuff. Um, I don't have a transition from that. Let's just pick it up in verse 9. I never promised I would. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to expound this section. We're going 9 through uh, 14 here. This is chapter 7, 9 through 14. And the patriarchs, these are the brothers of Joseph. We're talking about Joseph again, the guy with the coat. Uh, and the patriarchs, the brothers of Joseph, were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt. So the brothers of Joseph sell Joseph into slavery. Can you imagine the pain, the brokenness, the hurt, the betrayal? Brother selling another brother into slavery. But God was with him. It's good news. And God rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Joseph ends up in Egypt, and he ends up as a slave, like the lowest. He ends up in prison there. He's very, very low in social status. And through God's favor, he is ascends to second in command over all of Egypt. And maybe we miss this. Like, this is like somebody becoming like the vice president. Like that level of influence, that doesn't just happen. God is giving him divine favor. Some of you are experiencing this in your workplaces, uh, in the city. That's from God. Let us steward it well. Who made him ruler over Egypt, over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan. So there's a famine across the land in Israel and Canaan and Egypt. But God gave Joseph a dream that this would happen. And so he set aside year by year storehouses. And so Egypt has the only food in the land. We tracking? And, and the fathers of Israel could find no food. So what are they forced to do? The brothers who sold Joseph into slavery have to go to Joseph because Joseph is managing all this food, and they have to ask him for mercy. See, the beauty of the story of Joseph is that God is sovereignly using his servant's rejection. Joseph is rejected. This is not a story about a guy who's a hero. This guy is abused and mistreated and sold into slavery. He's abandoned by Israel and much, much more. There's, so, there's like a ton of chapters like Genesis 50 through, uh, through 55 or 45 through 50, excuse me. And God uses this rejection to bring about salvation and blessing for his people. When Israel was in famine and they would have starved to death, God divinely placed Joseph as a leader in the prosperity of Egypt for such a time as this. God knew what he was doing. And I don't think Joseph knew what was going on when he was sold into slavery. God knew what he was doing. And I want to ask you, some of you are walking through trials. Some of you are walking through pain. Some of you are walking through hardship right now. And you might be smack dab in the center of God's will for your life to bring about salvation and blessing and goodness to others. Let us not lose heart. So when Joseph's brothers come to him and realize they need to receive aid from Joseph, they are terrified. I mean, I can just can you imagine like walking up and you realize and, and Joseph eventually reveals himself to his brothers and they're just like 
are you kidding me right now? And I, I just would look and be like, well, we're done. Like the guy with all the power, the guy with all who has your life in his hand, who you sold into slavery, you're now asking for mercy from. And one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture is, is I think, Genesis 50, 19 through 20. It's going to be on the screen here. But Joseph said to them, his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That is a beautiful text. Taking the most, some of the most horrible things that can happen to a human being, and God uses that and redeems it. Those things aren't good, but God's redeeming it and using it and turning it for good. He turns and reconciles and redeems this family. It's a beautiful picture. See, Joseph's rejection leads to Israel's provision. This theme of rejection and oppression leading to salvation and blessing echoes and points to and is most clearly seen in Jesus, right? Jesus' ultimate rejection leads to our ultimate salvation. His death leads to our life. His betrayal leads to our adoption. His punishment leads to our peace. Amen? See, Joseph points to Jesus. Stephen continues on in the story. The people of God, they dwell in Egypt. But another Pharaoh is raised up who did not know Joseph. And the people of God, they're enslaved, which leads to Moses. This is the second character that Stephen wants to spend some time on. See, Moses is born hundreds of years after Joseph. And it's in this time period, Egyptian leadership attempts genocide on Jewish baby boys. Might sound like some Advent themes. The people of God, they're slaves to Egypt. And God uses Moses to lead a revolt against Pharaoh. And this results in the great exodus of Israel to Egypt to the promised land. You know, the parting of the Red Sea. Again, if you're in Sunday school. Uh, The parting of the Red Sea, the plagues. God uses Moses to free Israel from the slave master, from the oppressor, back to God. God uses Moses to perform incredible signs, incredible deeds, incredible wonders, incredible miracles to free the people of God. And the people reject Moses. The people reject Moses. The people rejected Joseph. Pick it up. Look what Stephen says in verse 35, and then we're going to jump to 39. It's going to be on the screen. This Moses, whom they rejected. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Moses is rejected by the people, and yet God uses Moses anyway to accomplish his great purposes. See, man's rebellion cannot stop the plan of God. We're not strong enough. We're not influential enough. I don't care how much power you have. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much influence you have. I don't care how uh, anything is with you. I don't care what family you have. You cannot stop the plan of God. And I say that to make us feel intentionally small, myself, as somebody who struggles with power idols. Intentionally make us feel small and intentionally make God look big should encourage us. Man's rebellion cannot stop the man of God. Our God is sovereign. That means he is in control. God uses Moses in mighty ways and in beautiful and profound ways. Moses points to Jesus. Joseph points to Jesus. Moses points to Jesus. How? See, Jesus is the greater Moses. 
who is delivering his people out of the ultimate slavery of sin. He is freeing his people from the ultimate shackles of death. He is defeating the ultimate foe, which is not Pharaoh, but Satan. He is leading the ultimate exodus, not to, not to Palestine, but to the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? Moses indeed points to Jesus. And in God's beautiful plan, Stephen is speaking to the people about Moses. And he's also reflecting Moses. There was a verse earlier in chapter 6, verse 15. Don't, don't turn there. But it says that Stephen's face was like that of an angel. I didn't, I didn't talk about it, but I want to talk about it now. It's a weird verse at first glance. But Jewish readers, Jewish audience, would have immediately saw that this was echoing Moses. This is pointing to Moses. Because Moses' face shone brightly after he saw the glory of God. So Moses and Stephen's face both shine and reflect the glory of God. Moses is talk, or Stephen is talking about Moses, and he's also reflecting Moses. And, and I, don't, I don't share this to be cute. If, if you know me well, you know, like, anything somewhat remotely, like, cheesy, I want to, like, throw up a little bit in my mouth. Um, I, I have it. Pray for me. Um, I've, got, I've got some stuff going on in my heart. And I don't say this to be cute. I promise. I'm not like, oh, look, their faces are shining. Isn't that nice? Like, we're in church. This is a nice thing. Like, oh, Joseph points to Jesus. Isn't that a nice, like, double J there? Look at this. I'll make five little easy points to help you remember this. Ooh, they got the three things with the sovereign Lord in them. Like, I'm not doing this to be cute. I'm not doing this to come up with, like, a sticky phrase. See, all of this is proclaiming the reality that these are not isolated stories. Stephen's not sharing two isolated stories to make a point. These are not moral tales. This is the story of God. This is a uniform story with a, with a single narrative that weaves through all of Scripture. This should be feeling so connected right now. I, I hope I've been able to do that, that you might feel, wow, like, Joseph points to Jesus, to Moses, back to Stephen, to Jesus, and then back. Like, this should feel incredibly connected and interwoven right now. And that is intentional because it is a uniform story that is one narrative communicating one story to one end. And the point of these narratives isn't to give us an anecdote. The point of these stories is not to give us a life lesson. It's not to give us a nice story or a good example or a history lesson or a blip of inspiration. That is not what the scriptures are about. The point of this true story of the world is about how God is redeeming and reconciling his creation and his people back to himself. Come on now, I'm, I'm going to be preaching here and I'm, I'm going to need us to get, get rolling. So every page, every person, every scripture is contributing to this ultimate, glorious, true story. We not read a fractured Bible, but a unified one that all points toward God sovereignly orchestrating the good, the bad, the wicked, the faithful, the faithless, the death, the life. He's using the victory and the loss. He's using the blessing and the poverty, the exile. He's using it all. He's orchestrating it all to bring about the goal of all of history. And the goal is God redeeming and God reconciling all of creation and all of his people back to himself through the person and work of the Messiah of the Christ, Jesus. Amen? This true story 
This true story points us to the author of the story. The Lord, the sovereign Lord, God himself. I get excited about this because I think there's something at stake here. Theologian Mike Goheen says that if we take the scriptures and chop them up into bits, he uses that language, moral, historical bits, lessons, anecdotes, moral stories, we chop it up. When we come to the torrent, the torrential stream that is our world and culture and sin that is apart from God, and we throw these bits into the stream, they're swept away. It has no influence, no impact. It's at best just sinks to the bottom and there's no consequence. At worst, it is swept away. But if we have a big scripture, a united, integrated narrative, then like a boulder, it comes down into the middle of that torrential stream and it's not moved. It redirects the river. Scripture shapes everything around it. It is not swept away. That's what's at stake here. What's at stake is either viewing Joseph as a guy with a nice coat, maybe a life lesson, or viewing that every single word of this is contributing towards God's mission that we are called to play a part in. There's a lot at stake. And what might be missed here is that Stephen knows the scriptures. He knows the scriptures. He loves them. He has studied them. He's allowed them to shape him deeply. I heard a pastor recently say, there's a group of us that were, that were learning from him, and he said, I've never met a, a Christian who is growing who isn't in the word. And I, I would say I absolutely agree with that, and I would even add, I've never met a Christian who is healthy who isn't regularly saturating his or her life in the scriptures. This is the very word of God, the very truth of God. And it's profitable for growth and for health and for training and for teaching and much more, church. We, we have to be a community of the Bible, a community of the word, a community of the scriptures. And I just want to ask you, start today. I don't presume that even the majority of us in this room are saturating our lives in this story. Start today. Read a chapter two. Start in Acts. Read the rest of the New Testament. Pick up one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read it. Proverbs is basically one for each day of the month. Read that. Oh, church, let us feed richly and drink deeply from the fount of God's word for ultimate nourishment. Stephen knows his Bible. He's preaching from it. And again, the theme of this speech that Stephen is giving is, again, throughout Israel's history, the people have rejected God's servants 
And God still has used this servant, still has used this situation to bring about blessing and salvation and good. But Stephen's not content just giving a history lesson. See, he, he presses in. Stephen presses in. I like to think he raises his voice a little bit. Gets a little bit of conviction going. That he presses in and turns the script from past rejection to present rejection. Stephen's going to use some strong language here. Uh, verse 51. Pick it up. It's going to be on the screen again. He says this. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart. So you think you're the people of God. You think you have the marks of the people of God. You're not. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Strong language from Stephen. Stephen rebukes the people. He asks cutting questions. Which prophet, which leader did Israel not kill? Stephen says that Israel's always resisted the Holy Spirit. Stephen says that the prophets and the kings and the leaders of old, they foretold and they announced the righteous ones coming, the Messiah's coming, Jesus is coming. Stephen says that Israel today, in Stephen's day, is just acting as Israel always had, murdering the very one that the murdered ones spoke about of old. Jesus. And the people will listen to Stephen up to here. They will listen to him no more. If you're taking notes, Stephen is the servant of the sovereign Lord. That was number one. Number two, Stephen is, he proclaims the story of the sovereign Lord. And what we see here from Stephen is the cost of following the sovereign Lord. Verse 54, this picks up where we did our scripture reading. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. You can just picture, picture these people with clenched fists. With, with, with teeth ground, they are resistant. They will not hear him. They are enraged. The people will hear a history lesson on rejection, but will, they will not hear someone calling them to repent of their rejection. And church, this isn't just going to be a history lesson for us either. We got to do some surgical introspection here. I was going to say, how do you respond to rebuke? How do you respond to someone calling you out? Is it, how dare you tell me? You don't have the right to, you, you are more immature than me. You don't have the understanding that I have. How dare you speak to me about this? Or is that, is that posture going on in your heart? Are you saying, you wouldn't understand, but they did this. I only acted as anyone would have, as you would have in my situation. How dare you? Are you humble enough to hear the call of a friend or young people of a parent? Because guess what? In many ways, they're wiser than you. Are you humble enough to hear the call of a community, community member calling you out, turning you from sin and pointing you to Jesus? Is your heart soft to correction? Or are you hardened and proud and believe that they don't have a right to speak into that? I hope we're uncomfortable. 
God says he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you think that people don't have a right to speak into your life, if your heart is like shocked that there would even be sin in your own life that could ever be called out on, you're in a very dangerous place. And you might even find that God is opposed to you. This scares me as a man with power idols and sins of anger and sins of pride. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to us here this morning. Christians, we should be thanking those who would call us to repentance for what an act of love it is. What an act of love it is to call a brother or a sister back to Christ. What an act of love. Why? Because sin leads to death. Sin leads to pain. Sin leads to loss. And, and what an act of love to call a friend away from that. We cannot be indifferent towards that which would kill and cause those we claim to love pain. The opposite of hatred is not, the opposite of love is not hatred, it is indifference. We can't be indifferent towards those we say we love sin. Here's the thing about sin. It blinds us. It blinds us. Which means we're all blind. We can't see what we need to be able to see. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate us. We need people around us. That's one of the biggest blessings of community is they see our blind spots. We should be thanking them. Like no one in the car looks at and be like, you're turning into the blind spot and the passenger's sitting there like, oh, they'll figure it out. Like, like grab the wheel, like a blind spot, like car. Like what are you doing? Like we need people. No one's be like, how dare you? Like we need people to speak into our lives. What an act of love. I... I remember my freshman year of college, there's a guy in this room who called me out on something that I was in sin in my freshman year of college uh, in a specific way. And I told him, yeah, you don't get to tell me what to do. Like I told this guy this. And he kept pressing in and kept telling me like, you're not living in step with the gospel you say you believe in. I needed that. I needed guys to come around me and say, Stephen, you're acting like an idiot. You're acting like a fool. Like, what are you doing? And I'm not saying use that language with me right now. Like, maybe tone it down a little bit. But, like, I need guys in my life to say, like, what are you doing? The way you're, you're way in your marriage, the way in your life, the way the things are going on, like, you are, you're, 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 you're walking towards sin and away from Christ. Young men, we need some older men to say, and I'm, I'm going to press in here, and I'm okay with things, again, getting uncomfortable, saying, like, you spend a lot of time playing in some fantasy world on video games, how would you get your butt up and get in the Word? Like, we need some older guys to say sins of apathy and, 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 and arrogance and sins of pride and lust. Those need to get put to death. Look to Jesus for your comfort. Not a controller. Look to Jesus for your power and your control. He has it, and you're running to lesser idols. We need some older women to say in our, in our lives to say, huh, that guy ain't no good. You ain't going to save him. Yeah. You ain't going to save him. Like, we need some older ladies to say, to say those things in our lives, and we need to be humble enough to hear them. And guys, I just told some girls to break up with their boyfriends, so you need to maybe step up here and fill in some of these gaps. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Put out a control and go on a date. We'll see how it goes. You're welcome. That one's free. We did a sermon on this on New Year's Day. 
We need also those. This is not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. We need some of the younger leaders. We have mentorship here. These mentorship relations need to happen. We need some younger folks to look at some older folks and say, like, man, you are really stuck in your ways. Maybe act a little bit crotchety at times. Like we need, we need some people. Am I getting too close? I don't know yet. And we need some people to, to in love say, you need to look and turn to Jesus. We need that. And we shouldn't be offended. We should be thanking them when they do it. We should be thanking them when they do it. What an act of love it is when my wife tells me, Stephen, that just ain't right. Like what an act of love it is. We're called to love our neighbor, which means we have to call our brothers and sisters to walk in step with the faith that they, they proclaim. Oh, church, may we be a people of soft hearts. May we be a people of humble hearts that receive correction from a friend with gladness and gratitude. Amen? Let's pick it up in verse 55. But he... Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is key. You came as full of the Holy Spirit. Try not to fall down the stairs. Um, Holy Spirit. He is not taking a back seat here. He is central. He's empowering Stephen. He's guiding Stephen. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. Gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I'm going to preach here for a second. Jesus is alive. What does Stephen see? He doesn't see him on a cross. He doesn't see him in a tomb. He sees him at the right hand of God. Jesus is not in a tomb. He's not on the cross. He is alive and seated at the throne and he's coming again. What good news. That shapes everything. That shapes everything. Look what he says. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, Jesus, is standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is alive. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Their hard hearts can't hear the beautiful truth of God. They murder Stephen. You would stone someone to death for the charge of blasphemy. The people see the truth of God as blasphemy against God. This is what sin does. It blinds us. It blinds us. Idols and false gods lead us into deeper sin. They don't, our sin doesn't want, our flesh doesn't want our best interests. God does. Sin leads to death. The people's sin leads to a mob brutally murdering Stephen. Just enter into this right now. Being stoned to death. It's horrific. Awful. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yeah, that Saul, the one you might be thinking of. Yes, that Saul who would become Paul, who would plant churches, who would preach the word, who would write about half of the New Testament. That Paul, the Paul that would suffer for the name of Christ, the one that would be used mightily by God. Church, no one is too far from the reach of God. 
There is no such thing as lost causes. No one is too far gone. Saul is presiding over and approving the murder of Christians. No one you know is doing that. No one you know, I don't care how, how mean your aunt is. I don't care how bitter your coworker is. I don't care how out there it may seem that your friend may be. None of them are out there stoning to death Christians. And if God can save Saul, he can save them. Let us have a sense of expectancy with our God. No one is too far gone. No one there, no one there at that scene is like, that dude's getting saved. You'll see. Like, no, they're, they're like, get me out of here. Like, no one's looking at Saul and be like, I see what you're doing, God. I see this story of redemption wrapping up. No one's looking at Saul and be like, that dude's going to write books of the Bible, plant churches, people getting saved. He's killing Christians. Like, don't admit, like, we can get caught up in these, like, that sounds familiar. Like, he's presiding over and approving the murder of Christians, and he's going to get saved in, like, a chapter. Spoiler alert. That's how it goes. See, none of us, none of us, none of us writes this story of redemption. It's beautiful, the story of God. It's tragic. There's pain and there's brokenness. Jesus says he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye and restore all things. There's some beauty in that brokenness as well. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is biblical language for he died. But there's something even beautiful there. This idea of falling asleep, he will rise. He will wake again. Death is not the end. For the Christian, we will rise and we will dwell in the eternal kingdom with our eternal God, and it will be glorious. Stephen points to Jesus. Again, this is one unified story, right? And, and at the stoning of Stephen and at the crucifixion of Jesus, these are parallel. Stephen's death is pointing to Jesus' death. Why? Because they both surrender their life to God. They both ask God to receive their spirit. They both ask God to forgive their murderers and not hold their sin against them. They both are killed by their audience, and they both do not seek vengeance. Stephen is being brutally murdered, and he's calling out, Lord, forgive them. His vertical forgiveness has bled out and poured out into horizontal forgiveness of his neighbors. One cannot forgive much if he does not realize he has been forgiven much. When we understand the magnitude of grace and mercy and forgiveness we have been given, it allows us to even forgive those who are ill-deserving, undeserving, those who got themselves into this mess, those who would cause us harm, even our enemies. The gospel actually should change our lives, church even to the point of loving our enemies like this. 
Let's go to the last three verses. Chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Last couple of verses here. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. What looks like defeat is indeed victory. What looks like defeat is indeed victory. The people are lamenting. They are fleeing. They're being thrown in prison. They're being killed. They don't see what God's doing. No one's sitting there and be like, man, they were winning, killing it, like crushing it. Like, this is it. They're fleeing. They trust God. They're running for their lives in this situation. But remember, what looks like defeat is indeed victory because remember what Jesus says in kind of the thesis, the mission cry, the kingdom cry in Acts 1.8. He says this. But you, will, you don't have to turn there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. The church is being scattered out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. This is according to plan. The means by which God chooses to execute his plan is through rejection, through the persecution, through the seemingly defeat of his people. This is just a beautiful picture of creative irony God's doing. Stephen's preaching a sermon about how God, through all of history, has used his rejected servants to bring about salvation and blessing and the will of God, right? We tracking? He's preaching that thesis of that sermon, not realizing he is a symbol of this exact thing. He's a rejected servant who was put to death. And through his death will accomplish the will of God that he had planned beforehand. Do you see the, the creative irony? Do you see how this is, again, an integrated story? It's incredibly profound. A beautiful and tragic story of redemption. Of the sovereign plan of God. The people indeed scatter because they're being driven away. And... The Spirit of God, press in here. The Spirit of God advances the people of God to accomplish the plans of God through persecution. I'm going to repeat that. The Spirit of God advances the people of God to accomplish the plans of God through persecution. So in closing, again, no, one, no one's looking at this picture and being like, victory, they're winning. Clearly, this is a symbol of victory going on right now. Anyone in the right mind would look at this and say, like, you are losing right now. But what looks like defeat is indeed victory. And this has to point our eyes to the cross. This has to point our eyes to the cross, right? Like, the symbol of pain, the symbol of pain and death and torture. We wear, if you wear a cross, you're wearing a medieval, like, you're wearing a pre, like a, 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 an ancient torture device around your neck. What is the symbol of pain and death and sorrow and, and suffering 
is turned into the symbol of life, the symbol of victory, the symbol of redemption, the symbol of restoration, the symbol of beauty. For Jesus conquered death. If he did not rise again, there is no good news, church. But he indeed rose again. He conquered death. He rose from the grave. He's coming again in final victory to put a final end at last, once and for all, to the reign of sin and death forever. So we can say, church, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring your kingdom. Unite heaven and earth once again. Restore this world that you have beautifully created and that sin has tragically marred and that you're putting back together again, God. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Fulfill what you promised you would do. It'll be glorious. God knows what he's doing. He has a plan. Even when it seems like all is lost. God has a plan. Even when it looks like there's no hope. Even when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Even when we don't understand what's going on. God is in control. He knows what he's doing. So let us turn to him. Let us trust him. Let us surrender to him. And let us respond to him now. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a redeeming God, a restorative God. What happens as a result of sin is not good but you can redeem it and make something beautiful out of it, yes. God, thank you that you take the rejection and disobedience of your people and turn it into good and blessing and salvation. Lord, I can see and we can all see in our lives how disobedience and rebellion in our own life, you took that and you used it and still brought about good. We didn't deserve it. Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Would you help us put to death our sin? Would we have humble hearts that receive the correction of a friend? Would we trust you? Would we turn to you? Would we look to you? Jesus, we trust you and we say, bring your kingdom, bring your restoration. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Wipe away every tear from our eye. Make things the way they ought to be at last. We long for that day. Until then, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen.